Welcome to the New Books Network. So, hello and welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, I am your host, Reka Anna Horvath, and in this episode, we are going to discuss the brain emotions from microcircuits to global brain function. And I'm here today with the author, Stan Griller, who has been a leading expert on the cellular basis of motor behavior for decades. And uh, last fall, so in uh, 2023, he published uh, the book, The Brain in Motion, which gives an amazing overview of what's the current state of the research and some big open questions. So Stan, thanks so much for joining us today and for writing his book. And can you perhaps start by introducing yourself? Well, uh, I have now quite some time been very interested in, in how the how come that the brain can control our, our movements? And um, already as a graduate student in the late 1960s, I, I um, was focused on, uh, on the problem and the problem then basically how come locomotor movements can be produced and how they are coordinated. And we found that, that, the, that the, there are programs in the spinal cord that can coordinate movements. And uh, so essentially there are different microcircuits in the brain that control different aspects, like locomotion, like posture, like eye movements, like breathing, and so forth. And over, over some decades, this was a fo- focus of, of our research. But over the last 10, 15 years, the evolutionary aspect has has been very central. And we have, to our surprise, shown that uh, that the organization of the nervous system is uh, is quite old. In fact, uh, uh, the basic outline of the nervous system was... uh, is present in the oldest now living vertebrate, just separate from the main uh, direction that developed into uh, humans some 500 million years ago. So essentially for 500 million years, the essential building blocks of the nervous system has been present. Of course, it has been elaborated, much more neurons, etc. but the plan was there very early on. And and um, we have then also focused on on the role of the forebrain and the role of the forebrain in contrast to the different motor programs in the brainstem, midbrain, spinal cord are coordinated. So how are they coordinated? And there, the basal ganglia and cortex plays a major role. It's. I have sometimes made uh, made uh, the comparison with an orchestra. It is like like uh, an orchestra where the different members of the orchestra are responsible for different uh, motor programs, and the role of the uh, the director or the conductor of the um, orchestra is to determine when a given 
member of the orchestra or a given microcircuit is called into action. So the forebrain is to some degree resembling and has the same role as a conductor of of the of an orchestra. So that's a very brief summary of of perhaps I should say that that over over since nineteen seventy five I have been been a, a professor in at the Karinsky Institute in Stockholm and and um, I've been able to conduct research and, and have still an active laboratory. And uh, I have been fortunate to uh, to receive some honors and prizes and members of academies like the National Academy, etc., which of course has been <clears throat> nice to receive. But, um, but the main theme is research. Well, congratulations for this, and thanks so much for this great introduction. I think it was uh, <laughs> not just an intro of yourself, but also a great uh, start into our uh, topic. And uh, let me just uh, dive in with that. So in the first chapter of this book, you discuss exactly the same uh, topics which you have just mentioned, so the evolution of uh, the brain and the nervous system across vertebrates and also the motor repertoire. Uh, so what is common uh, across the living vertebrate species today and where are the differences? Can you talk a bit more about that? Yes. Uh, if you think about the oldest now living vertebrates like like the lamprey or, 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 or some fish, uh, as I said, you have the outline of the nervous system. You have the circuits that coordinate locomotion that is present present there. You have have the the role, and also the forebrain actually have have the same uh, same role uh, there. And you have have the networks underlying eye movements, and you have the networks underlying breathing. Now, during evolution, of course. Uh, things have been added. Uh, the 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 lamprey does not have any limbs at all, no fins, bad. And and when you get get to amphibians and so forth, you have uh, limbs that are used for locomotion and the gravity and so forth. But they are also used for uh, for achieving different. So you can. The reaching movements and the grasping movements, etc., which are so important, both for feeding, but also for uh, when you, uh, when an amphibian or a reptile is moving on a wall, etc., it's it's very important. So essentially, the structures underlying. Uh, Reaching, grasping, and uh, and uh, <clears throat> feeding is uh, uh, evolved then at this stage, and, <clears throat> and of course then uh, then and of course different forms of vocalization and so forth. And in in birds, you have bird song, which is a very elaborate 
type of, of uh, um, communication, but still is very stereotyped if you compare that, of course, with uh, primates and particularly humans, the development of, of our speech, which has changed radically what we can achieve. We are the only animals that can talk about what happened yesterday and what we plan for the future. And of course, the development of speech as a mode of communication has been very important. And then the next step that we can transfer that to the written language so we can, uh, can actually transmit information and even we can read about what people thought 500 years ago or 300 years ago or 200 years ago and we can uh, can also write about the plan. So uh, the written, which is probably culturally bound, but of course it depends on our motor skills, it's, uh, it's uh, a very recent development, just some 10,000 years or so. If that should be considered recent, but in the evolutionary context it's recent. <laughs> yes, it's always funny to think about these time scales. <laughs> and one thing which surprised me again and again reading this book that uh, then the I hear the word motion, the first thing which comes to my mind are perhaps acrobatic movements, but you again and again bring such examples like speech, because yes, word song or the human talking uh, are also we also need motor circuits and this uh, kind of movement. Uh, can you perhaps elaborate a bit on that example? So comparing uh, the bird song and human talking, or what parts of the neural machinery are uh, similar and where are the differences? I mean, bird song is, if you take bird calls to uh, warning calls, I mean, they are clearly innate. And Birdsong, on the other hand, is a combination of an innate template and then uh, that can be varied on. So the young bird hears the sounds of uh, its father or mother in some cases and, and from that remembers this as a template and then they start to sing, and it's a gradual development of the song, but it gets very close to uh, to what uh, the original song. But it's also so that the same species in different parts of a given area may have different, uh, slightly different bird songs. Uh, one syllable may be longer or shorter, etc., so that also shows that there is a flexibility. But if you take, in general, if you, if you take a, a nestling and move it to uh, to uh, to the, the uh, to another species, it will not sing the song of that species. So, so I mean, there is a mix. It's it's, it's it is. Uh, a learning aspect, the 
inne, svarta modest rum, but, uh, but it, it's also innate. Uh, with the human speech, it's of course, I mean, uh, the role of the bird song uh, is essentially uh, to uh, defend the area which uh, which the bird has and then attract uh, um, uh, mostly the females uh, and uh, uh, and to reproduce so it's a very it's beautiful to listen to but but the role is rather concrete and innate and very important for the, the for, for a given species if you take the human speech it's a completely i mean we use the sound to produce uh, the speech uh, the speech sounds etc but the little um what is particular about and wonderful about our species is the ability of the very young child to start to pick up words from parents and the environment, identify to point to, identify different subjects, and gradually, over a period of just a few years, have a functional, not a complete, but a functional, uh, with lots of words and sequenced in the appropriate way and so forth and and i think that's the most amazing thing that we have about our nervous system that we really can do that and of course that has given us all the possibilities that our fellow vertebrates don't have to talk about what happened yesterday or what you're afraid of or what you love etc Mm, thanks to you for that uh, great comparison. And uh, do I understand uh, correctly that it's kind of a recurring theme in that uh, evolution chapter that what uh, seems to be the strength of humans is kind of the flexibility, that human language is much more flexible than the sometimes very sophisticated communication of other animals. And also you have a similar point uh, uh, about the uh, movement of, uh, of fingers that primates are the only uh, ones who can uh, move their, uh, their fingers independently of each other. And a cat or a bird might be uh, more skilled with some very specific movements, but primates have just a much bigger repertoire. Is that a correct way to phrase it? <laughs> Yes, yes, I think so. It's um, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, the ability to reach and grasp, etc. We already have have in 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 amphibians, but but the individual group uh, control of the individual fingers are uh, is a gradual development. If if you take monkeys they can use individual finger movements to remove a peanut from a small hole etc so you have that but you don't have the expertise of an artisan that works on on silver or a silversmith or or, or um, 
Or, or, or just if you take handwriting, handwriting is a very precise movement characteristic where you have also learned the, the small individual things. So uh, the versatility of our nervous system and the flexibility in what we can do is, on the other hand, specific movements, some other animals are much better. I mean, if you take... Take the diving, I mean, if you take a monkey that swings itself from one branch to another in, a, in, a, in, a, in the forest, we can't do that. <laughs> but the monkey cannot do a lot of things that we can do <laughs> with our hands. And what is the cellular basis for this flexibility? Yes, uh, I mean, it's probably probably a matter of that we have a large number of neurons uh, and uh, both in the motor areas and the frontal areas, etc. And then we also have uh, in the basal ganglia, uh, we have a much larger area. So you have specific interaction between the motor areas uh, or the cortex and, uh, and the basal ganglia. So I think the trick is that we have more neurons that allow for more specializations and also, of course, learning, because many of these aspects, uh, the, the fine aspect of fine control, are lost to learn like handwriting. <laughs> That's very interesting, and I quite liked that analogy, which uh, I think you brought up at the one of the very first pages of the book with this uh, orchestra. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and, and I would like to continue a bit that, uh, with that. So uh, so you describe uh, the uh, nervous system and the orchestra where the players are the various uh, CPGs and uh, motor circuits, and then the forebrain acts kind of like a conductor. So in the uh, second chapter of the book, you are actually introducing some of the very important musicians of this uh, orchestra. So, <laughs> uh, can you uh, continue with that? Yes, I mean, well, well, uh, one, one of the musicians is a network that coordinate locomotion and, and, and the spinal spinal networks that coordinate locomotion and and uh, they are present in the spinal cord whether you are swimming flying or 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 or, or, or walking but of course the details of the network will you will change but the basic design of the networks in in generating alternating movements etc are um, um, are, are conserved. So the lamprey has has a CPG, the network underlying locomotion, and and uh, it's composed of of sets of excitatory and inhibitory interneurons that are are, are connected in such a way that they, they when activated will produce the the. Uh, swimming movements, and that network is quite understood. Also the network, corresponding networks in the zebrafish, etc., 
is is well understood through the work of Professor Ullman Nira and the networks then coordinating walking etc are uh, are also understood to a large degree they are in the spinal cord you have different circuits controlling the different muscle groups etc and uh, although some details <laughs> are um, are important so so the CPGs are there and and also in all vertebrates, they are controlled from the brainstem in locomotor command centers in the brainstem in mesencephalon and projecting to the spinal cord. And the locomotor command center can turn on locomotion and also regulate the speed of locomotion by increasing the excitatory drive to the CPGs in, in the spinal cord. So that's... Uh, so this basic organization is quite well understood. So it's a concrete behavior. Um, and then, then we have the networks for respiration, for breathing that is turned on as soon as we are born, and they are, and when they stop, we die. So, uh, so, uh, and these networks are also coordinated to to uh, understood. To a reasonable degree, it, it's groups of nerve cells in in the brainstem that that generate this pattern of, of behavior, and associated with this breathing behavior, we also have have other related and important behaviors like sighing, and we interact with with the breathing CPG. When we swallow, we better stop breathing when we are swallowing. Otherwise, we have a little accident. Uh, and, and of course, we use the modulation of breathing as we speak. So, 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 so we have these autom autonomous circuits, but they don't operate... Uh, in an independent way, but they are integrated in the overall behavior of the animal. And we have the eye movements that, that are, are coordinated to a large degree from, uh, from the midbrain. So when you, see, you, when you stimulate or activate different parts of the midbrain, you can elicit eye movements in a certain direction and there is a certain amplitude. So you rapidly shift. And of course, the eye movements are controlled by, uh, by eye muscles that are very fast. And of course, if you think about our normal behavior, when we interact, we rapidly shift our attention from, from one um, point to another. And usually... The specific topic when humans interact is that we look at the eye and the mouse of a given individual. So, so which seems to be a, a way of making contact identification, etc. And you have mentioned that uh, 
several of these networks like Locomotion and Res are quite well understood. And are they well understood because they are so similar across all vertebrates that you can study them? With, I mean, uh, they are designed, if you take Locomotion, which I know most of, you have the locomotor command centers throughout the vertebral phylogeny. <clears throat> you have the spinal organization in in all all vertebrates. But then, of course, uh, the swimming movements uh, of of the lamprey are essentially alternating activity between the, the two sides of the body. Uh, but uh, but as we uh, include limbs, etc., it's a much detailed control of the different muscles of the limb, etc. But there are detailed CPGs built of the same, essentially the same uh, building parts, but there has been a further specialization. So essentially, it's... Uh, Evolution always build on what was there to start with, and then they tinker with what is available to get get a new further development. As we can see, we also with the general development of on our limbs, our hands. If you, if you think about our hands, it's similar to the primate hand. But what we can do to with it, with our hands and what we can achieve, and the versatility of the hand—it's amazing. Yes, and as a model organism, you often use uh, lamprey, uh, both mentioning in the book and uh, as that is, I know also in your research for a long time. Uh, why did you choose lamprey? Well. Initially, I worked on mammals, and I worked on mammals. I could show that there was a CPG in the spinal cord, that there was a sensory control, and that was an MLR. I realized, particularly with the methods available in the 70s, that there were, I was interested in, we had shown that there is a CPG, but how does it operate? How does it function? How is it made up of individual neurons? And then I realized that we needed to have a simpler model where in, in which you, you could um, identify the neurons, identify how they connect to each other, and how they form a network. And at that time, it, the techniques were not available in, in, in mammals to do that. So that was the reason why, why I chose that. And I chose the lamprey because it's still a vertebrate, so it's a basic vertebrate uh, uh, nervous system and design, but it has much fewer neurons than, than mammals and men. So essentially, it, it was a, a decision to, to, to find vertebrate model that was as simple as possible. And what was attractive at that time was also that the lamprey spinal cord is about, has a thickness of about 200 microns and it's transparent, so you can easily identify neurons, etc. So it was also a technical advantage. And, and it could be maintained for one or several days in vitro while you could activate the network underlying. 
So that was the rational. So that's where the, the rational for for moving from uh, from mammals to lamprey was was to find a good model, and I think we 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 solved the CPD question, and then we continued to use the lamprey because the evolutionary aspect that became more and more interesting for us. Yes, that's something you mentioned in the introduction that you were uh, actually surprised by the similarities between lamprey and mammals. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I mean, I was not so surprised of the spinal organization, but I was surprised that the forebrain organization was so similar because that I had not anticipated. No, no worries. And that's a very interesting uh, distinction. And uh, this actually brings us to our next topic, which is the conductor of the orchestra, the forebrain. Mm-hmm. And in that case, we are talking about a special orchestra where the conductor isn't a single unit giving a single instruction. But a whole conductor is a whole conductor team who <laughs> gives multiple instructions at the same time and where the conductor team members also interact with each other in various ways. So uh, can you perhaps talk about the interactions between cortex and basal ganglia and how that influences auto-behavior? Yes. I mean, essentially, uh, I think uh, uh, the fact that that also the lamprey has a motor area, a motor cortex, which was unexpected, and the basal ganglia is also present, um, of course, showed that that is a very basic feature. And the basal ganglia does not work in uh, in in isolation it, it has a major input from uh, from cortex but also from other parts of, of the brain um, yeah, and the um, the the role of the basal ganglia for selection of behavior because that's one important aspect also learning etc is 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 important. It has been formulated by by Sylvia Arber and uh, Andrew Costa in the following way: that uh, that cortex can express a wish, but if the wish is fulfilled, is determined by 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 the basic And uh, and uh, I, I think there is it's it's rather much. Uh, truth in this, uh, and if you look on how the basal ganglia works, it has a large input structure and a, a, an output structure, which controls different motor centers in the brainstem. And the basal ganglia, these neurons in the basal ganglia that talk to the midbrain brainstem, uh, they are spontaneously active at a high rate. 50-60% in, in our own brain. All of them are inhibited except those that are engaged when I speak. 
and and the role of that is most likely to keep the orchestra or the different midbrain midbrain brain cell structure in control, so they don't go off and play by themselves, uh, but 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 essentially remain silent, and it's only only when when the basic ganglia remove the tonic inhibition, yeah, and you have subpopulations of cells targeting different parts of the midbrain. And, and uh, so when you lift off that inhibition, the motor area is free to start acting, induce locomotion, induce an eye movement, induce this and that. And then, then this most likely is also prompted by uh, by signals from cortex and thalamus, and cortex often have also direct excitatory role, uh, projecting to the different parts of of the midbrain that controls eye movements or, or locomotion, etc. So it's it's like it seems to be like a push pull arrangement that the that the cortex can induce activity and promote activity uh, on uh, in spinal circuits, but if that should be effective, it must be combined with the removal of inhibition from the basic ganglia. So it seems to be a push. My interpretation is that it's probably a push-pull arrangement so that, that you have specific areas in, in, the, in the frontal lobe which controls eye movement, frontal eye fields, and they, they then promote, project to different parts of the midbrain to elicit the eye movements. But you also have the tonic inhibitory effect that must be removed. So, so that's probably the the push-pull arrangement. So it's modular, it's specific onto different topics, but it's disinhibition, removal of inhibition, combined with direct excitation that promotes action. But we should remove. We we should also recognize that that um, even mammals and, and lower vertebrates, if you remove uh, the, the motor areas of, of cortex, these animals can still adapt to the environment, they can survive, and, and they can execute different movements. So, so they can adapt to the environment. They can remember where food is. They will eat and drink, and so forth. So, cortex is important, but it's not indispensable for the basic motor motor types of motor control. So we could say that even if the cortex part of the conductor is missing, the musicians still know how to play and there is still some... No, uh, they still, still, uh, uh, the musicians are still under the control of the basal ganglia. Uh, 
Yeah, and the, it's a basic ganglia uh, that will determine when one or the other is in action. If 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 you remove if if you remove also the control from the basic ganglia, each of the musicians are free to play, but they are completely uncoordinated. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and one uh, relatively recent uh, finding from uh, 2021 that you mentioned is the specificity of the of the various circuits that there are uh, 42 different uh, specific targets in the uh, uh, substation nigra pars reticulata and they seem to receive input from uh, a very specific part of the cortex and control a specific part of the brainstem. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you have the link that you have uh, a specific. Uh, these are findings by Foster and McElvin uh, uh, um, that you have a very specific organization to the, the different parts of the motor areas in in Iceland uh, is uh, connected to different compartments in in um, in stratum. So you have a hind limb, a forelimb area the jaw area, etc., and the jaws are very important for for obvious reasons. And uh, and uh, they, in turn, are connected to, uh, to specific subpopulations of cells in the output level of the basic ganglia, which, in turn, control the different players, at least as we explained. Yeah. And then can you tell us a bit about the efferent copy and what that shows us and what the questions <clears throat> around that are? Yes. I mean, if not, if we assume that cortex plays, plays an, a role in planning movements, sort of planning what you do next and next and next, uh, and then, of course, uh, if you then have uh, have uh, a motor command that goes out to do a given thing, you lift the, the fingers or, or 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 listen to the <clears throat> lift the fingers or do any sort of motor act. If it, when the motor command from the basic ganglia goes out to relieve the inhibition, there it's of course of crucial importance that cortex is informed and also straight to actually is informed about that this motor command has gone out. So then you can play plan for the next phase and the next phase and the next phase. So it's critical that uh, that cortex and straight to also is informed about the motor command that are issued. So when when you have efferent copy of the efferent command signal, that's the efferent copy, um, is then uh, then a critical signals to send back where that that a command has been issued, and given the delays in the system, muscles are sluggish, the command is of course going out much before the movement has actually been executed. So you have 
the important feedback. You have also then sensory information that provides feedback that uh, about the actual ongoing movements. But the inference copy is a very essential part. It, it tells other parts of the brain which commands are issued, so which movements it can anticipate. And does it mean that it is a mechanism to avoid, for example, movement commands which conflict each other? Or yes, yes, essentially. It's essentially the planning that you should know commands are issued <laughs> so you don't don't issue another command that is opposite etc at least if you don't like to break the moment there is a, a special kind of uh, motor circle or area the per, uh, in the midbrain the periaqueductal grade, which uh, even got its own subchapter because it participates in other kind of circuits. Uh, yes. Can you tell a bit more about that? Yeah, the periaqueductal grade is a structure that have, have, have received much less attention than the, I think it, 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 it deserves. It's, it's a structure... Uh, which is uh, located in the midbrain around the aqueduct that goes through between the different ventricles, and uh, and it it receive it it consists a number of circuits that uh, that can can uh, are important for survival. You have cells that are. Or when you activate them, you elicit an escape response. The animal is running away. You have another set that is eliciting also defense re reaction. It's a freezing response that the animal remains completely motionless. And that's also good defense because many animals uh, detect uh, uh, movements of an animal and if an, an animal doesn't move it doesn't exist for them. so so the the freezing response uh, so that that's sort of it's like a center where you can elicit the integrated freezing response you also have uh, that's also related to and but then 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 you have um, also, other types of, uh, of of responses, sort of um, reproduction behavior. So the 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 female or male rodent sexual behavior, uh, the lordosis behavior in the females can be triggered from 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 this area, the spe specific motor area. And related to copulation, but you also have maternal behavior. So, and these are, uh, it's like the periaqueductal gray is the final command center to elicit this. But then you have further processing going on in hypothalamus, which is uh, a brain <clears throat> diencephalic brain. So, I mean, it's it's also controlling 
a large number of the, uh, feeding behavior, uh, a large number of autonomic behavior that are crucial for, for, for our survival. And maternal behavior, as Catherine Delac ha has shown over the last few years, is controlled from a given set of, uh, of neurons in a hypothalamus that contain the neuropeptide galanin that then project uh, to, uh, to, to PAG. Uh, and, and actually, it, it's so sophisticated, so there are different aspects of the maternal behavior that, uh, like taking the paps uh, and, and other aspects, that are controlled by different subsets of neurons within hypothalamus that then project to PAG, and PAG is responsible for the downstream control. So, so this structure, you have different subsets of neurons that are important for reproduction and, and also for survival, defense, etc., so it's it's uh, and and that's also under inhibitory control from the basic ganglia. And it receives uh, its import not mainly not from the cortex, but instead from the hypothalamus. Yes, that's. Uh, I think some structures, uh, in, uh, some structures also. Uh, there are also input from from. From cortex, but the main processing center seems to be in 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 hypothalamus. So you have the response. It was also emotions, etc. So so hypothalamus is is important also for feeding and so forth. But the, the paraqueductal gray, uh, particularly reproduction, but perhaps feeding also. But then defense, protection, survival. So it's, it's like, a, like a little command center that is very critical. And another specific area in the midbrain, which uh, seems to have a specific role, is the TAC2, uh, which is focused on the, on the egocentric space. How mm. does that fit into the picture and into the orchestra? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, it's uh, a tectum, or in, in what's it called superior colliculus in most mammals, uh, is is important for eye movements and and for our detail. So, and if we have the sensory input from uh, from uh, from the the eye. Uh, so, if different sort of salient stimuli occur in different parts of the visual field, uh, that activates neurons that activate, project to a retinotopic map, a map that exists in, in tectum. So, you then induce eye movements that are specific to, uh, to, to that area so that we get that in focus. And it also coordinates 
naturally I, but also head, body movement, so you orient uh, towards this object. And you have the converse, if you should avoid collision, you you you, you should be a compensa- compensatory movement in the other direction. And and of course in everyday life in, in, if 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 we walk yeah. along a road, what we do all the time is to move, make movements to avoid collisions with our fellow pedestrians. So, <laughs> or if you take a bird that's flying through the foliage of a tree, that maneuvers very accurately. So that's a function for for tectum. So it both orienting towards movements, getting that appropriate attention, but also to avoid collisions. And how does the tectum look like in an evolutionary perspective? So how is this? Also in an evolutionary perspective, um, uh, tectum has the same retinotopic map, it has projections, it has the output output to the the brainstem, um, allowing for orienting movements, and it's important for the orienting movements, but if if a stimuli is a large or stronger intensity or increasing in size, it instead uh, elicits an avoidance movement. And and the connectivity uh, to downstream control is, is conserved. So it is a basic solution that perhaps have, have been further refined in 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 mammals or birds, but but essentially the layered input, the retinotopic map, the output connectivity is there in, already in the lab. And how is the superior colliculus uh, different from the lamprey tectum? I mean, it's. Uh, uh, I, I would say that it's not quite. Uh, I mean, what it was, what we can say is, a, is that the basic design with input uh, from uh, from the visual part and also input from acoustic part, etc. You also use that for orientation. Is similar, but it seems that there are more interneurons. And, and subtypes uh, present in, in, in the superior collector. So, oh, for instance, a rodent or a. Um, so, so the, it's probably more elaborate processing. So, one has to find that you have uh, a further degree of specialization of the projection pattern, but, but it's, it's, like, it's like a blueprint. The, the the lamprey b- blueprint is like an architectural drawing that has has the basic features there, but you have in the architectural drawing there are details missing. So you also have a chapter about the cerebellum, and dead. Uh, uh, you say that it's mainly about perfection. So that uh, animals with a cerebral lesion can still initiate a movement, but uh, 
the, uh, the perfection of it is lost. How does that work? Well, the, I perhaps have spent less space than, uh, than cerebellum deserves, but, but essentially you can say that, uh, that cerebellum has a very, very detailed input from both cortex and, and from the body surface and from muscles. So it, it has a very rich uh, uh, dynamic storehouse what is just going on in 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 the body uh, and there is synaptic plasticity so that if if there is a mistake as if we have pain when we, from from a foot or something like that then we adjust our movements to minimize pain etc and and we know quite well the mechanism underlying uh, the input from uh, from the climbing fibers of the of the of the olive that are are um, one type of input sort of signaling that uh, that uh, an error detector, and then we have the ordinary input going on, and and. Uh, if if one gets lesions or parts of cerebellum, you often get, as I said, or as we said, uh, that movements can still be executed, but not with the same perfection, and we cannot compensate in the same way, etc. And of course, that's a very important aspect that that our movements are not only in principle there, but but they have the sophistication and the accuracy that is is, is required. Uh, it's it's also seems that that uh, cerebellum is of course important also for motor learning for expertise etc. But but you have what what cerebellum receives is have we sort of dynamic information about uh, the condition in the motor apparatus and the sensory part. But it also receives efference copy information, as we discussed earlier, which, uh, which uh, uh, for instance, from, from the locomotor circuits in the spinal cord. So, so it's, uh, it's a very important structure, but it's very different has a very different role from that of the basic ganglia and cortex. But one should also say that that uh, the cerebellar output talks to cortex, but it also talks to the basal ganglia. The basal ganglia output via different circuits also affect. So, so these are not quite independent circuits, but they are talking to each other and trying to improve the performance. So, uh, when the midbrain uh, output is talking uh, to, for example, a brainstem motor center, then there is an evidence copy, not just back to the thalamus and to the cortex, but also additionally to the cerebellum. And... Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. No. So, 
the cerebellar output goes is recent uh, findings by Sasha Dilak, etc., have shown that the same thing as for the basic ganglia output, that you have a very specific output to different targets in, in the brain for specific modulation. For instance, other locomotor movements okay, or, or of other movements. And you have also specific projections to, uh, to salamus and stratum and, and salamus and, and, and cortex. So, but, but what I can say is that, that uh, cerebellum that has probably as many neurons as uh, cortex is extremely well informed. It's a dynamic storehouse for, for what is going on in the body. And do you have mentioned that when there is a cerebellar lesion, it's not just the perfection quality gets lost, but also that the animal is less able to adapt to changes yes. in the environment. Yeah. <laughs> and is that the reason why uh, the animal has a harder time to learn something? Because during learning, they would need to adapt to a new situation. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I mean uh, if, if, if they don't, uh, uh, yes. Simple answer is yes. <laughs> and what else do we know about learning new, uh, new motor behaviors, new motor patterns? How does, how does that happen? Well, <clears throat> it's a thing that what what we can say uh, with uh, with the basic ganglia, one very important part of the basic ganglia is, is also learning uh, new movements, and and uh, one has a term called reinforcement learning, so that that we can uh, the, where the dopamine signal is critical. So if you have if you perform a movement and uh, and you um, 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 and that is considered to be successful. You also have um, have a, a reinforcement promotion of the synaptic activity that has led to this movement. So you can can have a, you learn to combine and and the basic ganglia are very important for for not only learning new separate tasks, but also for the coordination between different tasks. If you perform, if you perform a movement, uh, when you can take like tennis, you, you obviously need to combine in a very dynamic way your, your, your movement. And the, the ability to do this amazing combination where you should, you just move and the racket is like the extension of the arm and you have the appropriate force, etc. That is, to a large degree, um, a task of the basic ganglia. But also, probably, uh, uh, also a contribution from the, the cerebellum and the relative role here. I mean, for some things, it seems very clear that, that the, the adaptation that occurs 
through the climbing fibrous parts, etc., plays an important role also in cerebellum. So cerebellum and and the basal ganglia contributes to learning, but uh, but in a somewhat different way. And I shouldn't forget cortex and pallor there either. Yes, in the book you also mention an experiment about this uh, double lever press uh, task for rats where uh, without a functional cortex they are able to execute the already learned behavior but not learn the new one. Okay. Yes, you know, that's a very interesting task. That's an experiment done by Ben Solvesky at, at Harvard some years ago to make a rat uh, press a lever twice with a fixed interval, in this case, 700 milliseconds. It turns out that for that, the basal ganglia, a special part of the basal ganglia is important and the salamic input is important. If when the animal has learned this, you can remove the larger part of the frontal cortex and the animal can still do this nicely without any problem. But if you um, uh, if you remove cortex before the training starts, they cannot learn. So so the learning depends on the specific inputs from cortex. But when, when it's learned, then the basic ganglia can solve it and the brain is not, the, the cortex is not important. And, uh, and you can see that, that actually a large part of the standard repertoire, movement repertoire of the rodent um, or other mammals and lower vertebrates can be conducted without the, the motor areas. Sort of the standard repertoire. Then probably the fine adaptations, etc., is probably more dependent on cortex. So we can say that for learning a new motor behavior, probably cortex, basal ganglia, and cerebellum, all three are necessary in some way. At least they are both, both uh, players that, uh, that contribute in a different way during learning. But uh, I'm not sure that some forms of learning can, can occur without cortex. But, uh, in- can you give an example for that? No, I, uh, <laughs> it was a more theoretical uh, comment, but... but uh, um, you caught me there. I, I cannot give a, a, an example, but I, I, I mean, it's known that you can have even learning and plasticity even in the spinal cord when it's not in, in a connection with, 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 the, with the brain. So, I mean, you have plasticity at different parts of the nervous system. So, some forms of learning do not need uh, cortex or basal ganglia or cerebellum and other parts too. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And perhaps this uh, leads us to uh, the next uh, chapter. So in the uh, final pa uh, part of the book, uh, you... Uh, so, sorry, again. <laughs> so the final chapter uh, of the book has the title Comments on what we have learned and the challenges ahead. And I would like to hear a, a bit more about it. Where do you see the biggest open questions for the next years? I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but 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 um, we we clearly <clears throat> I mean we 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 do understand some things, but but, but uh, as I said, the visumote coordination, which is so very important, how we uh, how we perform different movement in relation to the environment, and I mean. We also perform our movements based on our knowledge. So if we enter a dark room, we can still find whether the light knob is, etc. So it's a visual memory that can then direct our movements. And I think we are still... still the, the fact that many movements and how we adapt the movements, they depend on... But uh, on our memory, our, our visual memory, and of course also the fact that we can reach out to different points with great precision even, the, which requires a lot of precision in the different joints, etc. Et, 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 et and even that we can can perform movements under a microscope where we really are very, very precise. We can adapt our system to that. I think with motor coordination, we do understand uh, some parts we, which has been very important. We understand that there is subspecialization. We have the visual area somewhat uh, of of, uh, of, of cortex, but we also have the input from tectum that also enters the areas of cortex, which is a higher order visual areas. And when you stimulate them, you can uh, you, you can subdivide the areas in different areas, which coordinate different aspects of our movements. So we can elicit movement, approaching movements, uh, reaching movements, etc which again from these visual areas are transmitted to the motor and premotor area of cortex. And it seems for probably for for visuomotor coordination um, cortex is is quite quite important in, in, because it is a very complex processing from remembering uh, and uh, and um, and then then we also have our ability to learn habits, which also depends on on uh, forming a structure for a specific type of movement and the type of movement that we use when we unlock or, uh, our home when we get home or something like that. We have a fixed movement pattern. We don't have to think about it. Somehow the hand does the appropriate thing. Uh, and so visual coordination is one aspect. 
that I think is very interesting and also very solvable, given a lot of research and a lot of interest and a lot of creativity. And but but also also the uh, <clears throat> the human ability for speech development, I think, is also, as I said earlier, it's an amazing capacity of our, our brain. And I mean, we start to understand where things happen and, and, and a little bit of the processing, et, 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 et cetera, which are important. And then it's one very interesting finding that I, uh, that I think a researcher called Fried uh, did that if you stimulate in the human brain uh, if you stimulate an area part of an area called the supplementary motor area you can elicit a movement but 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 the person experienced that as this was his decision so so it's 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 a link between the self and the movement if you stimulate most other parts of motor cortex there's a twitch and the person doesn't understand why that happened but in this specific area it is as if you touch on on one central seam in that the person feels that he he or she owns the movement it was her decision, but it was not. It was just an electrode that activates some neurons in, in the brain. So I, I think to understand those complex relations and how much of our movements are dependent on, on memory, visual area, the subtle adaptation, I think we have a lot of interesting things to do there. So a lot of these questions are about how the movement uh, system interacts with even more parts of the brain, like memory, or in that case, yes, I mean, I mean, clearly, clearly, uh, uh, our uh, a lot of our movements are dependent on that we remember um, location. We remember. Uh, that and we we automatically adapt the movement to uh, to to this environment. So a lot of the movement control actually, the voluntary motor control depends on our memory of uh, different uh, parts in in the environment, the condition, etc. So so I think that's. That's an aspect that we have not been able to touch on, which we may not have good techniques to uh, to, to to address. But but I, I think that's an important part, and and also I mean the interaction with the sensory processing that depends on both visual and higher order visual areas, and and also tactile and the input. From from the so I think that's lots of interesting things to do. 
sounds like that. And what are your plans uh, for the next year's? Which projects are you working on? <laughs> no, we we are. It's the the evolutionary aspects, and then then what we are trying to work on is the evolution of the basal ganglia, and and the role of the basal ganglia, the intrinsic function of the basal ganglia in terms of how cells interact and 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 uh, develop in the, in into programs and the importance of the monitoring system, the T, dopamine, etc. Are things that that I think so one needs to be more focused <laughs> than the general ideas. And in the chapter about the basal ganglia, you will present both a lot of experimental results and also a lot of simula uh, simulation. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, can you perhaps elaborate a bit more on that, how these two types of research interact with each other? Yeah, I mean, I have over the since since the late 80s, in parallel with our biological experiment, which has been maybe the main thing, it's also very useful to use uh, simulation and and to understand the CPG. We we use simulations. We made detailed simulations of the neurons that. Uh, how they operated their membrane properties, their synaptic properties, etc. And we could use that to make neurons that were very similar to their natural counterparts. And we, when we connected them together in the network that we knew existed, we could see that the network could actually perform and generate their behavior. And I think simulation is a very useful tool to to test and 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 address things when you are sitting with a lot of experimental data, you say you you can say that blocks like this and uh, and the interaction like like this, and it could could uh, could probably account for the behavior, but if you simulate the behavior and you get all the details right, and you show that. Actually, the simulated network can perform the same uh, function as a biological. That's a validation of that you, you, you do that. And for the same reason, over the last several years, we have in the basal ganglia simulated the, the connectivity in in, in striatum together with my collection at Helgren and colleagues and Alex Koslov and uh, and we have used used that and we we have now with the development of the computer technology also you can make detailed simulations of large numbers so we can actually simulate uh, the, with realistic neurons, with the appropriate uh, connectivity, uh, dendritic arbor, uh, and and so forth, we can simulate the 
the function of uh, of stratum with the appropriate number of cells, at least for a mouse. Uh, so the dorsolateral um, stratum, which controls the motor behavior, we can actually simulate that and, and then uh, use that to pose different questions, etc. So in so I, I consider simulation as as a very useful additional tool that we have to make us. And of course, in simulations, sometimes you see we don't uh, that we miss one piece of facts and another piece of fact. Either we need to make an appropriate and educated guess and, and record that, or or you can do the experiments and find out, etc. So you get everything as correct as possible. And so, so I I find simulation uh, of this with it based on detailed biology is a very very useful tool. Thank you. That's very insightful and. As a closing, I would like to ask you the question, what kind of new result or breakthrough would motivate you to write a second edition of this book? <laughs> yes. Having, having, having written a book once, <laughs> somebody said, I asked, asked for a second edition many years ago of a colleague that, and then he said, have having made a mistake once doesn't mean that you like to make it another time. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I would probably like to write a similar book, but I mean, I could write a more specialized book on um, pig because a book like this, uh, which, which with a very broad scope that I, I thought was very interesting, of course, means that that you skip a lot of details and 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 so forth. So, but but it it has been a very useful experience to do, and uh, I enjoy doing it, and uh, I may do it again. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, both for uh, writing uh, the book, which I have learned a lot from, and also uh, for this conversation. And thank you very much. I have enjoyed the conversation also, <laughs> and I hope it will be useful. Oh, it has been definitely a very insightful moment. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you very much. So, bye. <laughs>